Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. With the Biden administration about to submit its 2024 budget to Congress on March 9, joining us today is one of Washington's top defense budget minds, my friend Todd Harrison, the managing director uh, for Matreya Strategic Insights, the independent internal think tank within the innovative defense and aerospace company. Before joining Matreya, Todd spent seven years uh, heading the aerospace security project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and he continues to be affiliated with CSI where he continues to produce uh, the uh, award-winning Bad Ideas program. Todd, always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so much for joining us. Hey, Vago, good to be back. It's always a pleasure having you on the show, and it's a particular honor to have you on on the day that latest Bad Ideas work has has, uh, surfaced. So uh, I'm very, very glad to be talking about it because honestly, I I sadly believe and fear there are a lot more bad ideas ricocheting around Washington uh, than, uh, than, than good ones unfortunately. Uh, before before we start, a quick word from our sponsors, Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors uh, our air and naval warfare coverage. Okay, Todd, uh, so uh, it looks like we're on the verge of a bouncing baby budget. The passback process has been going on and on. Uh, We hear March 9. Uh, At first, we were hearing uh, many months ago, and we were reporting uh, that the administration looked like it was going to request $30 billion over uh, last year. The question was, was that over what the White House had originally requested or what Congress had uh, authorized and approved uh, and appropriated? Uh, Now, all we know is, quote, it will be more, end quote. Um, (laughs) What is it? What is what is the expectation? Right. I mean, and we're going to get to the bad idea of a year long CR uh, and, you know, innovation, bad ideas around innovation theater and the like. But but sort of fundamentally, what is your expectation on what we're going to see from the White House next week? Yeah, no. So I think the expectation is that we're going to see an increase in total defense funding above the FY23 enacted level. Uh, so for DOD, the you know discretionary DOD budget ended up being uh, about $817 billion for 23. So we're expecting to see an increase above that. Uh, I will add that it's not just an increase. I think we're expecting to see an increase that is at or above inflation. Now, what's what are they going to assume inflation is for FY24? Um, I, you know, it's the whole expectations game, right? You don't want to expect, you don't want to put in there inflation is going to be really high because that then builds in expectations into, you know, the uh, markets um, and it can become a self-fulfilling prophecy. You also don't want to lowball inflation and say, oh no, it'll be back to 2% because that's not realistic. Um, My bet is they're going to put an inflation estimate for 24 uh, uh, for the GDP chained price index. Uh, I think that they'll probably put somewhere around three, three and a half percent. Right. So then if they've got a DOD budget that just grows with inflation from the 23 enacted level, uh, that means they need to come at, you know, somewhere around 850 billion. 
for the DOD discretionary budget. Which so, is about $30 billion. That is. It's a, a little bit more. So that would be true if they said, oh, it's more than that. It's a little bit more than $30 billion. So um, that that is kind of my expectation. I think that's what folks are, are expecting to see. If they come in higher than that, then that's going to be a, a higher than expected budget. I think there will be some people excited about that on the Hill. There'll be some people upset about it. Uh, if they come in below $850 billion, um, then I think they're going to take some some hits from Congress from both sides uh, about what's in that budget. We are also in uh, a crazy season. Um, I, you know, you uh, and I have been talking, I think, for way too long about uh, the Budget Control Act and its aftermath. Um, it, it started with um, the threat of defaulting uh, America's uh, uh, credit, I mean, debt, defaulting on America's debt. Um, that drove a credit downgrade that still plagues the United States. Uh, and, and now we're back to playing with fire again, right? So on the one hand, people are arguing that we should be spending more money and that, you know, we, and the administration would be pushing on an open door. On the other hand, we've got a debt default spectacle that's playing out uh, and extraordinary measures may run out as treasury warrants now a little bit sooner. Where do we end up with this? And do we end up with another budget control act? Yeah. So I, I would say once we get past the the budget request rollout season, then everyone should just be thinking about the debt ceiling and how that's going to get resolved because that's really all that matters uh, going forward. Uh, for the, the rest of this budget season, they've got to get the debt ceiling resolved. Um, I think that, you know, if you if you game it out a bit, I think there's several ways this could play out. Uh, best case scenario, they negotiate, they come up with something that is close to a clean agreement uh, to just increase or suspend the debt ceiling for some period of time. Uh, and when I say a clean agreement, uh, I mean, it does not have any kind of mandatory budget caps or reductions or anything like that. Um, you know, no BCA, right? That, that would be the best uh, alternative in terms of the defense budget and getting stability and on-time appropriations and all that. I also think that's a very low likelihood <laughs> if we get that. Right. Um, another alternative is they negotiate and they come up with some sort of a deal. Uh, a deal that does something to reduce spending in the future. And there's a whole range, um, you know, of possibilities for how that deal could be structured. At the worst case, it would be something like the Budget Control Act, where they put in some sort of, you know, budget caps um, in future years and an enforcement mechanism like sequestration right. again. Um so there's a whole range there. I think probably most likely outcome is it's something less severe than the Budget Control Act, um, less, you know, kind of strict uh, and tightly controlled, um, but probably something uh, that does, you know, something meaningful to reduce spending. Maybe it's not entirely, you know, on, on discretionary. Uh, but it is likely to impact defense one way or the other uh, with some sort of limits. Um, the nightmare scenario is if they keep negotiating and they can't reach a deal right. <laughs> uh, and we run up to the deadline and then the Biden administration is faced with some pretty difficult alternatives. Uh, you either default, right? You default on obligations. You don't make payments uh, that are due uh, and all kinds of economic uh, consequences would spill yeah. over from that that we we don't even know we've never done that 
Um, that's that's the worst case alternative. I think it's very low likelihood they do that. Or the Biden administration uh, could do something, you know, to basically say, hey, I'm, I'm disregarding the debt ceiling. Take me to court. Right. <laughs> and then, you know, that prolongs it a bit and the courts would have to decide, do they want to step in, um, you know, and, and adjudicate yeah, the market? Issue. But markets are going to move a lot sooner than that. Right. I mean, the last time we got into this because, you know, um, those proponing the cleansing by fiscal fire, as we used to discuss, right. It's, it's important to burn the house down to save it. Right. right? We have yeah. to, we have to destroy it to build it back up. You know, but markets started moving and once markets get vested on betting against you on something, it becomes kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy and it's uncontrollable, whether that sentiment is yeah. inflation or, or anything else. Right. Um, yep. And so, right, we get there a lot sooner than that, don't we? I mean, d- d- doesn't the street like by May start to react to this well, rather than wait for that sort of denouement? Well, so so the latest estimates I've seen are that we might not run out of extraordinary measures until sometime between July and September. There's a huge amount of uncertainty we will know a lot more once we get past April 15th when folks have made their tax payments. Um, and then we'll know, uh, you know, better terms of, you know, the treasury situation in terms of cash on hand. Um, but yeah, I, I think you're right. As we get really close to the deadline, I would say, you know, once we get a, a more solidified deadline, probably the week or two before that is when you would start to see the markets react and the closer you get to it, the more reaction we're going to start to see. Um, the, the other alternative I should point out, though, is if we get no deal, if we run past whatever the deadline ends up being, it is also possible that the Biden administration could just say, OK, I've got to prioritize payments like you can continue working. It's not a government shutdown uh, because we have appropriations. So the government can sign contracts and continue to do work as usual. It's just that not all the checks are going to go out from the Treasury because there's not enough money to pay all the checks. So they could come up with a prioritization scheme uh, of which bills they're going to pay first. uh, And to avoid an actual default on the debt, they could pay debt first, make debt payments first, uh, and then work their way down from there. That would have uh, a pretty bad effect on industry, especially the defense industry, because no matter how you you know sort that prioritization scheme, I think defense industry is likely to be near the bottom. And so that would mean a slowdown or halt of payments uh, until Congress figures out how to resolve this, right? So there's a whole range of alternatives, but you know it, it's going to require us getting closer to the deadline before Congress really gets motivated to try to negotiate uh, a deal in earnest. You know, hey, it's always better uh, when uh, you're, you, you, you finish your taxes at exactly 525 and, and race to the post office uh, then uh, and manage to drop it in the bin uh, right before they close the gate. That's, it's always much more exciting that way. Um, <laughs> Congress needs a forcing function. Right. And so, <laughs> yes, unfortunately, you need a hard deadline. And at this point, we don't have a hard deadline yet. The, the sword is, is, is hovering over uh, over our heads. So let me uh, take you to um, some of the mechanical questions. Right. I mean, there is, you know, we we've heard uh, from Air Force Secretary Kendall and a, and a number you know, Mike McCord and a number of other uh, leaders that one of the reasons your year long uh, continuing resolution as opposed to an appropriation is 
the number of new starts that are likely to be in this budget. Um, Secretary Kendall, I think, mentioned the word a dozen uh, new programs. There is a sense the department is trying to do a lot of stuff to, you know, not just attend uh, to Ukraine, but Ukraine driven lessons. Uh, there's going to be big munitions investment. There are going to be new program starts uh, as well. Uh, the secretary was clear there will be 12 new program starts, uh, at least in his service. Do we, do we have, a, you know, because the, the concern was, Todd, that some have had is, well, no, there'll be a lot heavier on munitions, a lot lighter on programs, uh, you know, program programs, platforms. It looks like they're trying to do both of those things. Do we have a sense at this point what some of these new starts are going to be, what some of the focus items for this administration are going to be, um, given, you know, Kath uh, Hicks uh, has been focused on the program, along with the, the folks in CAPE, uh, Susanna Bloom and her team. The military services have been working on a whole a whole bunch of new things in order to kind of augment their capabilities, uh, as well as deal with some of the industrial-based challenges. Do, do we have a sense on what this new budget is going to portend? Yeah, I mean, in terms of the specifics, you know, they are staying pretty tight-lipped uh, about that, which is normal, um, and waiting, you know, for the budget request to come out. They don't, they don't want to get ahead uh, of the budget request. Um, but, you know, if you looked at last year's uh, budget request, the FIDAP, the five-year projection for RDT&E, the research and development part of the budget, which is where a lot of these new start development programs will go, um, the out years of that projection was pretty weak. Uh, the funding actually was projected to start declining uh, over time. And so, you know, I think what there is expectation, there is appetite for DOD to fill in some of those out years. Uh, and one of the ways you do that is with new start programs, things that have been expected maybe, but haven't materialized yet. You know, we've seen the, the critical technologies roadmap come out of uh, Undersecretary uh, for Research and Engineering, Heidi Hsu. Uh, her office has put out uh, the critical technologies roadmap, I think that is likely to inform where we're going to see some of these new start programs, things that relate to those critical technologies that they're actually trying to pull into programs to go into weapon systems to be fielded in the force, um, you know, sooner rather than later. Um, so I, I think that's going to be, you know, one of the exciting things to look for in this budget request. It is, you know, also one of the vulnerabilities for the budget because, you know, new start programs cannot get started under a continuing resolution. Now, I don't think we're looking at a full year CR, uh, but, you know, we are, you know, 80% of the time we start the year for defense on a CR. Uh, I think this year is not going to be any different uh, in part because the budget request is so late, uh, but also because Congress has got to resolve all this issue around the debt ceiling. Um, but, you know, depending on how the debt ceiling is resolved and if there are tight constraints on defense spending, um, that could force a, a more extended CR this year. Uh, and we don't have the forcing function of an election, making people want to get home to their districts uh, in October. Um, you know, we, we could see this drag out, uh, you know, further and further into the year. It would not surprise me if we went into January of 2024, uh, still under a CR. If uh, fiscal and political political gravity allow, 
right? So we're, we could be at an 850 request, let's say, give or take, right? Because the administration has been suggesting three, three and a half is the inflation number, even, even though inflation is running at 6.8, right? I mean, we heard from Mike McCord last year uh, and in other forums where he sort of explained, look, I mean, you know, a lot of these are long-term contracts. We're making some adjust adjustments, other adjustments, we're, you know, so, you know, the aggregate impact obviously is eating up a part of the department's budget, but maybe not as much as it does, it is elsewhere, right? I mean, so, uh, you know, on, on, you know, and some companies have sought equitable adjustment and others uh, have not. How much do you think Congress adds, right? I mean, is it is it realistic in your mind that we could get to 880, say, 870? Yes. So, so I'll, I'll caveat my answer by saying, let's assume we get through the debt ceiling debate with without any kind of, you know, hard constraints on defense spending, okay? Um, if we don't have constraints like that coming out of the, the debt ceiling debacle, <laughs> that it might become, uh, then I would say, yeah, it would not surprise me to see Congress want to add another thirty billion or maybe even forty billion above the request. So that would push DoD discretionary potentially up to eight eighty, maybe eight ninety. I, I want to take you uh, to uh, bad ideas uh, because that always deserves. You know, we've done entire shows on bad ideas, except uh, you know, rather than sort of the five minute uh, version. Uh, but really quickly, one thing which I'm sort of intrigued by is the war in Ukraine obviously is taxing supply chains. In fact, we're going to talk about the uh, about the uh, supply chains on the Air Power podcast with JJ Gertler on on Thursday. Um, you know, to to sort of be like, look, if we had to really surge production for the things they mat that matter, uh, what what's the bandwidth for us to be able uh, to do that, right? And, and and one of the triggers of that was. Whatever the merits of the F-18, it's a hot production line. It is a jet that we can use. Where we're going, we may need every available jet. Well, as of late 2025, that that might not be uh, part of the equation anymore, right? Some see it as a political stunt. Others that the company is just turning the page and going to go to a go to go to future programs. Has the war in Ukraine actually driven or opened markets for a whole bunch of innovative companies that have invested to develop capabilities. You guys fall into that category. Uh, you know, Andrew falls into that category. Palantir falls into that category. Number of other other companies. Um, do, do, does I mean, have we crossed the Rubicon? Uh, do you think where guys who have made that investment have developed products and shown that they can scale are actually going to get through it to a defense customer that will buy them? Because historically. You know, we've taken the good idea, competed it to everybody, and given the contract to Lockheed, right? Or North. I mean, I'm not busting on Lockheed, a big. Well, yeah, I think the, the difference is you're talking about capabilities that, in many cases, the government did not directly fund, right? Uh, it's capabilities that private industry went off and funded and developed without a government requirement. Uh, and then came back and said, hey, we've got something we think is pretty useful to you. Um, I think what we've seen in Ukraine is that some of those use cases have started to prove fruitful. And I think the U.S. government has recognized that. The example I like to highlight uh, is with Hawkeye 360 uh, and, and their you know, passive RF sensing payloads on their you know, constellation of satellites in low Earth orbit, where they can geolocate emitters on the ground, like GPS jammers, as one example. Um, and they do that commercially, and they can sell that as a service. 
And so that is unclassified, uh, essentially signals intelligence data um, that the U.S. government can use, that the U.S. government can pass to our allies, to our partners, um, and, and can even, you know, show it publicly uh, to, you know, name and shame, you know, what's happening uh, on the ground in Ukraine. Uh, but I mean, more importantly than shaming, it's actually informing uh, how the Ukrainian military can push back uh, against uh, the Russians. So I think that capabilities like that are really starting to prove themselves out. And I think folks in DOD and in the intel community are starting to realize, you know what, there's something here. Um, that these guys can go out and invest and develop and field, uh, and they can do it in a faster timeline uh, than DOD can do through the normal, you know, PPBE process. Like, let's take a couple of years before we actually get funding, and then let's go through the whole, you know, uh, uh, JSIDS process, uh, right. and maybe in 10, 15 years, we start to have a capability. Um, you know, this is a way to short circuit that process. Uh, and get things out to the warfighter sooner, you know, and it's not a hundred percent solution. It, it might be an 80% solution, but it works. And so that, I think Ukraine has been kind of a, a testing ground uh, for that, that model. Uh, I think it's starting to gain, gain traction. I don't know that we've turned the corner yet though, to be, be, you know, totally honest. Um, and I should point out Carrie Bingen uh, of Hawkeye 360 uh, succeeded you at uh, the uh, uh, aerospace uh, security project at CSIS. So she continues uh, your good work. Speaking of CSIS, um, bad ideas, Todd, bad ideas. Yes. I, give, us, I'm... give us the thumbnail sketch. And as you know, <laughs> you're always welcome back to talk about bad ideas. Well, you know, I have a lot of bad ideas, but... No, you don't. Uh, <laughs> you highlight other people's bad ideas. <laughs> <laughs> Depends who you talk to. Uh, well, I am. I'm so happy that Seamus Daniels has carried on the tradition uh, right. since my departure at CSIS, and they just started publishing uh, the latest round of bad ideas in national security. Uh, and I was happy to author one. Uh, so I, I'm now an external author, uh, although you know still have my CSIS affiliation. But uh, you know, really kudos to Seamus uh, and the team for for getting that out there. Um, the piece that I offered this year actually relates to what we were just talking about, uh, that I think innovation theater, as it has been called, uh, is a bad idea. It's a terrible idea. Uh, and I think we're seeing a lot of that in DOD, uh, you know, with, you know, every few weeks goes by, there's some other announcement of some new initiative or the creation of a new organization uh, that is focused on innovation and how do we how do we innovate faster and how, how do we get things to the warfighters sooner? And I really worry that there is more theater going on here uh, than you know actual work. Um, to, you know, it, it, it's not enough to have an announcement. I guess um, is kind of my point. Well, uh, and, and let me let me ask you this because I just got back from uh, Silicon Valley, right? Uh, one of uh, the uh, places where there is a lot of innovation, um, and there there are a couple of mindsets to that, right? I mean, that was one of the questions which I asked folks out there was, you know, I mean, at what point is this actually counterproductive? And and the answer was, look, it's productive because it gets more people engaged was a small number of people who got it. Now, the more people who get engaged, the more people who get it. So sort of the intermediate inter, the, the intermediate overdoing of it may actually have a very positive outcome. How do, how do you respond to those people who make that case? Yeah, I would say that, you know, but we, we are 
approaching that point of overdoing it. And really the, the downside is we spread ourselves too thin, right? How many different innovation type organizations do we actually need uh, within DOD? I think what's important is there are a lot of great initiatives and offices that have been formed already. We just need to follow through on what's already been started. I think that's the key. And that's one of the points I make in the, the bad ideas paper is we got to follow through on what we've already started. Following through means actually funding things, right? Get, you know, not $15 million, but, you know, like actually hundreds of millions, billions of dollars to follow through with these, you know, innovation organizations that we already have, like give them real money and make sure they have the authorities that they need. Um, and that might require requesting new authorities from Congress. And, and guess what? Congress will go along. Uh, if DOD will ask, Congress will go along with a lot of that. But the second part of it is DOD's got to change its mindset that DOD is not in the driver's seat when it comes to commercial innovation. So don't try to be, um, you know, the point I make in, in, in my paper is they need to pivot their efforts to focus on leveraging rather than leading, right? DOD is used to being in, you know, in decades past, DOD is used to being at the lead in R&D efforts where they get to pick winners and losers. They get to, you know, write the specs, write the requirements for what they want the technology to do. That's not how it works with commercial innovation, right? What you need to do with commercial innovation is look at what's already out there. Let people come to you and show you what they can already do. And you figure out, can you leverage this for what you need? Don't go and try to spec it. Don't write requirements for it. Uh, just take what's out there and figure out, can I leverage this? And if it, if it works, if it gives you an advantage, that's when you use it. The last thing you want to do, do is go out there and start inter interfering with the commercial markets, right? You know, Adam Smith's invisible hand, Adam Smith, the economist, not the representative in Congress, but you know, that, that invisible hand uh, that's out there that helps direct and redirect the allocation of capital, DOD doesn't need to be messing with that. Uh, let that happen and just be a good customer, right? And, and figure out how you can use these things and be a good customer, one of many customers for this technology. Um, I, I should uh, point out that uh, the invisible hand of the ranking member of the House Armed Services Committee is also a great thing uh, and, and, and one, a beneficial one. Yeah, that's the other hand, the other invisible hand. There's that's two that's the other invisible stuff. hand. Um, let me, we've, we've got about a minute left, but I, I, I have to ask you uh, this question. Most people you talk to regard the span of this future year's defense plan as this five years as among the most critical to deterring China. The president has bought us some time uh, by making an explicit connection that the United States would defend Taiwan. We're putting more capability out there in the Ukraine, the response to Russia in the Ukraine war is designed to try to deter China. And indeed we're hearing that we may be deterring or changing the Chinese calculus. It we'll see, only Xi Jinping knows what his calculus is and internal events could drive him. Is this, the budget that's going to start getting us there, Todd, because a lot of what this administration has looked at has been sort of more about the mid 2030s, right? Mm -hmm. About the longer term. The AUKUS agreement uh, was supposed to deliver submarines quickly. Now it's like a 2040 thing, uh, right? Which folks yeah. are like, man, that's a little too far maybe to, you know what I mean? It's, it would be sort of closing, closing the doors after the horses are, are gone. Is this budget going to be the one that does it? 
I think is that, that is recognition the hope. that it is that important. I, I think that is the hope um, that this administration that'll this will be their third budget request. Uh, it is the first budget request that is coming after the release of the 22 uh, NDS National Defense Strategy. Um, I think that that really is the hope that this budget should have been built from the bottom up, NDS informed. Um, and so, you know, that's what the hope is. I don't know that they will be able to achieve that. Uh, that is, it's a huge ask, right? And it's a huge undertaking to get the department, you know, all moving in a, a coherent direction. Um, but I think that will be one of the measures of success or failure of this budget request is, does it get us to where we need to be within the next five years vis-a-vis -vis China? Todd, thanks so very much for joining us. It's always a pleasure uh, having you on the program uh, and look forward to having you back once the budget is out, uh, along with uh, other uh, of uh, luminaries who've helped us analyze the budget in the past uh, to sort of get a sense on what they got right and what they uh, maybe uh, need some more help, right? Nice shirt, decent belt, okay shoes, right? <laughs> <laughs> and and we can check, you know, the accuracy of my numerical predictions. <laughs> uh, ex ex exactly, exactly. Uh, you've been pretty on the mark over the years, so I'm, I'm willing to give you that. Todd, thanks so very much again. I uh, really appreciate it. We'll have Seamus on to come and discuss all of the other bad ideas, right? I mean, it, it's your, your contribution was just one bad idea. Just one. But it's, you know, I, I do have some pretty bad ideas, so. I appreciate it.